Hey, Gasly Ghouls. I'm your host, Lee. And I'm Devin. Welcome to Gasly. So, Devin, what's new with you? Tell them about the concert you went to last weekend. Oh, that one? That one. Yeah, it was Bad Omens. It was pretty good. Mm-hmm. A lot of fun. We also went to a trampoline park for our daughter's birthday. It was super fun. Like, both of our moms jumped. Yeah, it was cool to see them up there jumping around. Yeah, it made me happy. And I think somebody pooped in the obstacle course, but I can't confirm nor deny that. It smelled poopy. It smelled poopy. But it didn't look poopy. So who knows where that came from? That's the risk you take with a ball pit. That's right. All right, Lee, what's the story this week? So today's case is really interesting because it's not a who done it, it's Ooh. a why done it. A why done it? Yeah. So let's hop in. We are in Phoenix, Arizona, in the hot, dry southwest of the United States. Although this is January of 1997, so it's not so hot outside that you can bake cookies on the dashboard of your car like it is in the summertime. It's about 50 degrees Fahrenheit outside at this point, a cool winter night, and a man named Greg Coons lives in a middle-class neighborhood in Phoenix, and in his home, Greg and his girlfriend Stephanie are getting ready for bed around 10 p.m. after a long week of working. It's finally Friday night and time for them to relax. So as they get into bed, they hear these strange noises outside their window, seemingly coming from the direction of the neighbor's home in which a married couple and their two children live. Uh Uh-oh. It's the Philater family. The Philater family. Philater, yeah. Okay. The noise... I'll save that Philater. The noise sounds like a growl from an animal or a moan from a human, something like that. It's strange. That is strange because those are pretty different. Yeah, and the Flaters are a really normal, non-disruptive family, and they're great neighbors who aren't usually making loud or weird noises at bedtime. So the sound piques Greg's interest. He gets out of bed and steps outside just to get a better clue as to where the noises are coming from. So once he's outside, this definitely sounds like a human groaning or moaning. And there's this high wall that separates his yard from the Philater's yard. So Greg climbs up on something to peek over the wall, looking over into the Philater's backyard and their pool. Here he sees who he believes is the wife and mother of the Philater family, a woman with short curly brown hair, and her name is Yarmala. It's way too dark to see super clearly, but Yarmala looks like she got super drunk and fell onto the ground by the pool, just kind of lying there and moaning and lightly crying, like squirming around a little bit. All right, it's a little strange. Yeah, and Yarmala is definitely the source of the strange noises, though. This is where it's coming from. Inside the Philater home, the neighbor Greg can see the husband, Scott, turning lights on and off as he walks through the house. He is this tall, slim man with brown receding hair in his 40s. It's definitely Scott. And as Greg is about to call out to Yarmala to see if she's okay, he sees the back door open of her home and the husband, Scott, comes out and he just stands there for a little bit, staring at her. He walks toward her a little bit nervously and at first Greg expects scott to pick his wife up and help her inside the house but instead scott puts on a pair of gloves drags yarmula over to the pool 
rolls her off the edge into the water to where she's floating face down and he appears to hold her head under the water it's really dark though so greg can't really tell what's going on he's watching from a distance in the dark but panic rushes through greg's nerves and he runs inside his home and calls 911 this whole scene i'm just envisioning breaking bad like that style house setup i don't know i just can't get it out of my mind yeah it's in the same area southwest u.s looking looking over the fence and you see like the sliding glass door open and then there's the big pool right there i don't know Mm, yeah that's what i'm viewing right now yeah so greg calls 911 and he says to the dispatcher quote the husband just threw i believe the wife into the pool and it looked like he's holding her underwater The dispatcher then asks Greg if he heard any fighting take place before seeing this, and he says, quote, I don't know what the problem is. I don't know. It's weird, and I'm concerned, end quote. So police and paramedics are dispatched immediately. Greg had just watched his neighbor murder their wife. He is witness to a homicide. So it's definitely not a whodunit. You're right. We know it's Scott. Very soon after the 911 call, blue light from police sirens light up the night sky, beaming into the windows of all of the neighbors. Three police officers run to investigate the scene in the backyard of the Filator's home. The scene is described by one of the officers as looking like a shark attack had taken place. Wow. The neighbor Greg had watched the drowning, but it had been too dark for him to see the swirling streams of blood pouring from wounds all over her body and staining the pool water a deep red. Yarmala's lifeless body floats in the blood red water, looking as grotesque as the aftermath of a shark attack. That's vicious. Two officers pull her out of the water and immediately know that she is gone. There is no life left in her body. The third officer rushes inside the house to find her husband, Scott. It doesn't take him long to locate Scott standing at the top of the stairs in his PJs. He aims his gun at Scott and yells at him to show his hands and get down on the ground. Scott appears super confused and keeps asking what is going on, what is going on, but the officer just yells at him to shut up and get down on the ground. So finally Scott complies and then he's handcuffed. He is arrested for the first-degree murder of his wife of 20 years, Yarmala Filator. Did he actually do it? Is he framed? Just have to keep listening to find out. So the officer asks Scott if anybody else is in the home, and Scott responds that himself, his wife, and their son and daughter are all in the home. Of course, the officer knows that his wife is not inside the home, but the two children are awoken from their slumbers by police to discover the most heartbreaking and disturbing news that they will ever hear in their lives. Their 12-year-old son, Michael, later says, quote, I went to bed as a 12-year-old kid with a happy life, and I woke up to a police officer telling me that my mother died, end quote. The children reveal that they did not hear any fight between their parents that night. All was peaceful in the home at bedtime. Scott Filator is placed in the police car outside where he is acting absolutely bewildered at this whole situation. He keeps saying that he doesn't believe them when they say his wife is dead. He denies having anything to do with this and he's almost in a daze. Like at the top of the stairs, it truly looked to the officer like he was lost. But 
police ignore this behavior and they take him to the station for questioning anyways, because, of course, there was a witness to this man drowning his wife. Yeah. Hey, it was dark, though. Did he actually see the husband or did he see a man do it? But he saw the husband walking around inside the house and then walk outside. So he knows that it's the husband. Oh, okay. So before I go into the questioning and the investigation, let's rewind to learn more information about the Filater family and who Yarmola was as a person. In an Illinois high school in the late 1960s and early 70s, Scott and Yarmola met each other as teenagers and they were smitten. At the time, Yarmola's last name was Kleskin. A romance blossomed between them, they began exclusively dating, and as they graduated and moved on to college, they stayed in a committed romantic relationship despite going to different schools. Okay. So he attended the Illinois Institute of Technology, while Yarmala went to North Central College, which is also in Illinois. They're sweethearts. Yeah, they're high school sweethearts. The couple were both raised in the Catholic Church and took loyalty and commitment very seriously. They were known to be genuinely an awesome and loving couple, super kind people. Scott finally popped the question. He asked Yarmala to marry him, and their wedding took place during their senior year of college in 1976. Their education did not stop upon earning their bachelor degrees, though. Both Scott and Yarmala Filater continued on to earn their master's degrees as well. So we have two intelligent, educated, kind people building a stable life for themselves. Once done with their schooling, Scott landed a job as an electrical engineer at Motorola. And a side note, I, I feel like we've had three stories in a row of people studying in electrical engineering yep. or some type of engineering in college. But uh, Yarmala, who absolutely loved kids, started working as a preschool teacher. Cute. In the following years, they made several large life changes. In the 1980s, the couple welcomed two children into the world, a son named Michael and a daughter named Megan. They moved across the country from Illinois to Phoenix, Arizona, into a two-story house with a pool, which they did not know would be a future crime scene. And they both converted from Catholicism to Mormonism. Wow. This religion changed to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, a.k.a. LDS, a.k.a. Mormonism, was more Scott's idea than Yarmala, but she was happy to join along and still attended church with him and stayed super involved. Eventually, Scott even started teaching religious education classes and acting as a church counselor for couples and individuals within the LDS church. And people trusted him because he and his wife had an amazing and faithful marriage and they were super involved in their community. Or did they have an amazing and faithful marriage? Doesn't sound like it from what happened at the beginning of the story. Spoilers. Seriously, everybody who knew this couple had nothing bad to say about either Scott or Yarmala. Not even their own kids, not their family members, nor their friends. Their kids, Michael and Megan, loved their home life growing up. Their parents were peaceful, never had significant arguments, and they made them feel really loved. Yarmala eventually left her job as a preschool teacher to be a full-time stay-at-home mom, giving her full attention to the kids, who felt really deeply loved by both of their parents. Scott and Yarmala considered themselves soulmates. There was never adultery, never any big fights, no abuse in any form, no financial issues, nothing like that. Scott wished Yarmala was a bit more devout with her Mormonism, but it was never a real point of contention. 
and the couple had a solid network of friends and they would host barbecues and get togethers at their home where people would come swim in their pool and hang out and connect with friends. They were patient, loving, and understanding with each other. Seriously, no red flags, no warning signs during their 20 years of marriage until their neighbor Greg witnessed Scott murdering his wife on January 16th of 1997. So here we are. Scott Filater is at the police station to be questioned for the murder of his wife. He still even has blood spatter on his neck, but he vehemently denies hurting his wife. He's told by police all of the details of the crime scene. His wife has been discovered dead, floating in their pool, filled with her blood, with too many stab wounds to even count on the scene, and that their neighbor even watched Scott drown his wife. But in response to this gruesome story about his wife, Scott just acts shocked as if he's some other random family member finding out this tragic news that they've never heard before. He acts as if he is not the man responsible for her death. He seems completely shocked and he cries and he says, quote, I've been married all my adult life. She didn't deserve to die. She was a good wife. She was a great mother, end quote. So in this interrogation, police ask Scott to walk them through every single detail of what happened that night. Scott explains that he had dinner with his wife. Yarmala mentioned that the pool filter didn't seem to be working and asked Scott to fix it. So Scott spent some time preparing a lesson for his Mormon class, and then he ventured to the pool to fix the filter. And by the time he came back inside from messing around with the filter, Yarmala was already asleep on the couch. So he gave her a kiss and he went upstairs to the bedroom around 9.30 to 10 p.m. and fell asleep for the night. He says that lying down in bed and going to sleep was his last memory, and then all of a sudden, he woke up and was standing at the top of the stairs with a police officer pointing his gun at Scott, yelling for him to show his hands and get to the ground. Scott explains that anything happening between going to bed and being arrested was a complete blackout. He has no memory of it. But luckily, police have an eyewitness to the exact things that happened during this so-called blackout period, and police, of course, believe every word of his neighbor Greg's story. That is crazy, though. And this is when Scott says, I must have been sleepwalking. Mm, A little sleepwalk. Yeah, he explains that sleepwalking has been a recurring issue throughout his life, beginning in childhood, where he even would sometimes physically hurt his sister at home as a child. He says that this must be the only explanation as to how he'd kill his wife and not remember a thing. Yeah. After 20 years, you finally kill your wife after sleepwalking. It's crazy. Right. So this is why the case is so interesting to me. At this point, Scott is not denying being the person who stabbed his wife and drowned her in the pool. Right. He acknowledges that it was him. It was his body, his hands that were doing it. And there's an eyewitness to this. There's no denying it. And it's not a who done it, like I said. It's a why done it. It's how done it. And Scott blames this extreme violence on his unconscious sleepwalking that he has no memory of. So, of course, he's talking about his sleepwalking as a kid. So police decide to interview his parents and his sister. And they confirm Scott does have a history of sleepwalking and occasionally, but rarely, being violent during these episodes. Wow. According to a neuroethics scientific article published in 2015, 
people are not awake or aware of their actions or surroundings during sleepwalking episodes, but from the perspective of somebody watching them, they look conscious. It is thought that sleepwalking people do not perceive senses in this state. They don't perceive pain, touch, light, smell, etc. And all of those things do not elicit a response. They usually know how to navigate their house because they're used to it, but they don't respond to touching. They don't respond or wake up to these senses. People do not retain memories while in this state either. And episodes can span anywhere from a few minutes to up to an hour long. It's common for people to wander around their homes or to eat food while sleepwalking and to wake up surrounded by food in the morning, not knowing how it appeared there. Yeah, I've had a couple Fridays like that. Just I wake have, up just covered in food. <laughs> I have actually had that happen one time in my life. It was like five years ago. And I woke up and a box of Samoas, like the Girl Scout cookies, was completely empty next to me in bed. I had no recollection <laughs> of eating them. Nice. It sounds like something I would do is it eat does. a whole box, yeah. but I didn't remember doing it. So either I did it or someone snuck into my room and ate it next to me. So I like the sleep eating option. I hope not. Yeah. It's also common for people to leave their homes and walk down the street while sleepwalking as well. Sometimes people end up even driving their cars away from home while in this state. Wow. And it is rare, but there are definitely instances of sleepwalking that have resulted in extreme violence, even rape and or murder. And if a person is truly in an unconscious state while murdering somebody, it raises the ethical question of are they legally liable for a crime that they unknowingly committed? Yeah, it is the question, isn't it? So Scott Filater has claimed that a 45-minute episode of sleepwalking is the reason his wife has been murdered and that he has no memory of this. Autopsy results come back, revealing that Yarmula had been stabbed 44 times by a hunting knife. The majority of these wounds were defensive wounds, but he managed to get numerous deep fatal stabs in as well. Yarmula died via drowning, but the stab wounds would have ended up killing her if she had not been drowned. So specifically, the knife wounds match up with one of Scott's hunting knives that he always kept in their garage. But after the murder, he had taken this knife to his van to hide it. Mm -hmm. And that is a level of intentionality that isn't characteristic at all of a sleepwalking episode. Yeah, that's a little extra. Yeah, as is the fact that after the murder, he cleaned a cut that he got on his hand and dressed it with a bandage. And he changed clothes after the murder and hid the bloody clothes in the van with the murder weapon. All of this happened between the murder and the police's arrival, by the way. Even sleepwalking experts know that this was not an episode of sleepwalking. It is far yeah. too intentional to have been blamed on sleepwalking. It's pretty, pretty sus. Yeah. So sadly, Scott never strays from the sleepwalking story. He never reveals any conscious motive that would drive him to murder his so-called soulmate. So after years of interviews and building the case, the trial finally takes place in June of 1999, which is two and a half years after the murder. Prosecutors point out all the details that I just told you. So the details of Scott's actions being far too intentional for him to have been sleepwalking. He put gloves on before drowning her. He changed clothes after the murder and hid them in his van with the knife that he used to stab her 44 times. He cleaned and dressed his cut. 
And in addition, the backbone of this whole case, of course, is that the neighbor Greg Coons testifies, revealing the story that he heard Yarmola's cries, saw her lying on the ground, and watched as Scott walked outside, put on gloves, dragged her to the pool, and drowned his own wife. The defense heavily relies on the testimony of Scott's mom and sister, recalling their memories of Scott's sleepwalking as a child and the occasional violence that they witnessed during the episodes. His sister said that when he was about 20 years old, she woke up to Scott sleepwalking toward the back door of their family home. When she tried stopping him from going outside, she said that he looked angry and almost demonic. He grabbed her shoulders and he threw her away from him across the room. He also would walk around the house nude as a teen during his episodes, having no idea that these things happened upon waking up. They say he's been more likely to sleepwalk during times of stress in his life, like around the time of a stressful exam or planning the wedding, moments like this. And the defense attorneys claim that Scott had recently been working really late hours and not getting a lot of sleep, which that in itself is a stressor. So they say that he was likely sleepwalking through the house, and when his wife tried to wake him, he viewed her as a threat in his unconscious state, and he killed her in a rage. He even has cellmates, since he's gone to jail, testify that it's not uncommon for Scott to sleepwalk within their cell. Regardless of the many people testifying about his sleepwalking, he still performed too many complex intentional actions during and after the murder to pass as genuine sleepwalking. Jurors deliberate for eight hours, and Scott Filater is found guilty of the first-degree murder of his 41-year-old wife, Yarmila Filater. Prosecution is going for the death penalty in this case, but at the sentencing, Many people, including their children, Michael and Megan Flater, testify to Scott's amazing and loving character, and they beg the judge not to kill their dad, who they still want to maintain a close relationship with. They believe that he was sleepwalking. So upon hearing this, the judge does sentence Scott to life in prison without the possibility of parole instead of giving him a death sentence. That must be so hard for those kids. That's so crazy. Yeah. Just like randomly. And like, maybe he did. You never really know. Nobody know really knows. I he had a knows. lot of specific actions, but still, you never really know. I do. I definitely think he should be in jail for that, but that's crazy. I don't know. It's hard for those kids. Yeah. I, even as I was reading this case, they really got me there. Some yeah. of the articles really got me, especially doing research on it and knowing people have murdered while sleepwalking. You know, right. could this not be another instance of that? Mm-hmm. It's it's really confusing. I can see why the jurors had to deliberate for a really long time. Right. Especially because he's still doing it and he's done it before as a kid, like being naked. Yeah. Just walking around the house. Yeah. You know? As a teenager, you know, a teenager, a teenage boy isn't going to walk around naked. Right. You know? It has to be sleepwalking, driving that. And to this day, Scott Filater still sits in an Arizona prison, and he still has a really close relationship with both of his children, although they are deeply heartbroken over the loss of their sweet mother, and they still have to mourn the memories that they wish that she could be making with her grandchildren right now. Scott has always stuck with the sleepwalking story and maintains the fact that he still deeply loves his wife, he misses her, and he cannot wait to be reunited with her in heaven. 
Scott just says he tries to live a life in prison that would please her. He takes care of himself in there, and he encourages anybody with a sleepwalking disorder to seek treatment for it. Apparently, there are a lot of people who have sleepwalking disorders that write him letters in jail, and so he just encourages anybody with those disorders to get treatment before anything crazy happens while they're asleep. So I don't think anybody will ever really know what happened that night and whether it was intentional. Yep. But that is the end of this tragic story and the horrible death of Yarmula Felader, who was a loving and loyal wife and mother. As always, thank you all so much for giving us a listen. Thank you. Please remember to subscribe wherever you listen so it can be spooky season year round. And you can also follow us on Instagram at Ghastly Podcast to see photos from each case. See you in two weeks on September 28th for our next episode. Love you guys. Bye. Bye.